Hello, everybody. Danny Anderson here with a quick announcement before we get to the show. The Christian Humanist Radio Network is apparently becoming more popular, and we are producing an ever-expanding number of shows, and we are therefore at the edge of our server space. We are about to transition to a new server. Uh, Nathan Gilmore is heading up this project from the Christian Humanist Podcast, and if here's the request. If you subscribe to one of our shows via some podcast app, we're asking you before September 1st to unsubscribe and then on September 2nd to resubscribe. And what this will do is to prevent you from downloading all of epi- all the episodes of every show that you subscribe to all at once when we make the change over to the server. So just to avoid that kind of uh, conflict, if you subscribe to the show via some sort of podcast service, iTunes or Stitcher or whatever, uh, unsubscribe before the 1st of September, resubscribe on the 2nd of September. There's a a blog post on the Sectarian Review Podcast website right now if you want to look into this a little bit closer. And like I said, if you have any questions, you can contact either me or Nathan Gilmore, who's probably the person who knows more about it. Now to the show. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hi, everybody. This is the indecent Danny Anderson uh, once again for the Sectarian Review podcast. Uh, thanks for downloading another episode. And once again, let me thank Crazy in the Brains for letting me use that uh, that song of theirs. I, I saw those guys years ago at some little club in New York, and I've always sort of remembered them. And when I was looking for some show uh, opening music, I thought of them, and they said, yeah, go ahead. And so I've been using it ever since. So uh, throw them, show them some love over there, wherever you can find them. So um, today we are going to be talking about authenticity uh and i'm joined today by coyle neal of the city of man podcast and this uh the show is actually coyle's idea sort of it's been one of these things that's been bouncing around my show forever people talking about it and finally coyle contacted me a couple of weeks ago and asked if we could do it do you want to tell me why coyle 
Uh, I thought you would pay me if I showed up, uh, which I, I suppose is, is that an authentic answer or an inauthentic answer? Um, it's authentically funny, so I'll take it. So it's good. Well, yeah, there we go. Um, no, uh, I, I, th- I think to correct this, I think the, uh, the show was your idea. I think you had said something like we need to just do a show on authenticity because we're talking about it so much. Uh, and I, I had done kind of a third of a chapter of my dissertation on it and thought that I could do that uh, without really any work on my part, which is kind of how I define my life. You know, what's, what's the least work for me? Uh, so I, yeah. And then that, that led to the message that led to this show. That's your political career, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, well, it is. So everybody wants to talk about this and I believe um, several years ago I sat in on a Christian humanist uh, podcast where we did talk about this uh, at length in the way that those guys talk about things. And um, I talked about if my memory serves and you know how these things go, I don't really remember what I said in any particular episode. Um, But I remember talking about Lionel Trilling, which I will do again today at some point a little bit. Um, But yeah, I, I was thinking for the purposes of this show, we would kind of take a look at authenticity as a concept throughout history, sort of its historical uses and that sort of thing. And this is where your uh, dissertation is really fascinating to me. And uh, and I thought we would talk about the, the various ways in which that term informs our life, the various like realms of life uh, and experience. Um, so this is going to be a bit of a loosey-goosey episode. Um, but I do think this is a term that people are interested in and, uh, and I think people are right fully suspicious of, uh, on, on some level. So, uh, Quill, I wanted to know if maybe you could begin our discussion with a little bit of historical background and the ways that you have, uh, engaged with the term of authenticity. Uh, yeah. So I, uh, my, my dissertation was on, uh, uh, the, uh, the preacher, Jonathan Edwards. So kind of back at the, uh, uh the very beginning of, of American politics or, or even, I guess, pre-American politics, cause they were still British at that point. Uh, but but the and the, I suppose it'd be easier to define authenticity before we uh, before we talk about the history. But it is sort of one of those words that defies definition. Uh, it, it kind of means whatever the person using it wants it to mean, whenever he's using it. Uh, but there, uh, uh, in a sense, there's been an obsession with authenticity uh, just since the beginning. So the uh, the Puritans came to the New World uh, to live the true, authentic church as opposed to the corrupted Church of England. Right? Even even at the beginning, there's some idea that uh, the the establishment is doing it wrong. They're they're being inauthentic. They're just after their own power or their own glory or whatever. Uh, and we need to do things right. Uh, uh, and that that obsession has really hung around, although it's it's taken different forms. Uh, so I, again, I, I did my work on Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he has three three works uh, that, if you're interested in authenticity, these are kind of the the key ones to focus on. Uh, uh, the one that I think is probably the most interesting, but it's it's maybe the least important and, and least read, uh, is work called "Some Thoughts Concerning the Revival." Uh, as the Great Awakening is going on, he uh, he writes this reflection uh, of whether or not the Great Awakening is is an authentic work of God. So this this mass religious movement uh, is it something that God is is legitimately doing, uh, or is it just some kind of uh, uh, oh mass delusion or something like that? Uh, it's it's not really something most modern Americans are interested in, but I, I think it's something we should maybe pay more attention to. You know, how do we talk about not just an authentic individual, but an authentic social movement, right? The the something that's happening in society as a whole. Um, uh, can I? The, um, sorry, go, yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in? So, in that usage of the term, though, and this is, I guess, we can kind of work on definitions as we go. Um, 
it uh, applies some sort of authority that yes. um, that gives uh, sort of the proper function of the of the activity, right? So authenticity yep. is referring to something that is in charge kind of right. Uh, there, there's an external standard. Right? Yes. And I, and I, I think that's uh that's, that's critical. Uh, so later if, if we get to it, uh, I'll talk about how people who like Kierkegaard and talk about authenticity just annoy the crap out of me. Uh, <laughs> but people who like Edwards and talk about authenticity, I'm usually a little more sympathetic to, um, even though they can also be annoying. Uh, uh, and I, I think that is part of the difference uh, yeah. and, and maybe we'll, we'll get in there. Well, um, and, and also I think yeah, that I'm, I want to just kind of highlight what you just said is an external standard. So this movement is authentic because God has willed it or as God has uh, authorized right. it. Right. Um, and I think in our modern usage, this is something we'll get to authenticity is an entirely internal uh internally yep. defined uh concept and so i think that's uh this historical context is really good for that that in that way um continue yeah, no no that's that's exactly it. it's it's modern in the modern world it's authentic because it's legitimately me doing it like yeah. it's a legitimate reflection of my being uh and and edwards and i think i think all christians would say yeah but your your being is awful and you need <laughs> you know uh maybe you shouldn't be authentically reflecting it in quite the way you mean uh the the big work uh, of edwards to read uh i think probably the most important work of theology written in north america so far is uh, religious affections uh, it, it takes the question, how do I know what I experienced? Uh, uh, it, it asks the question, how do I know that that thing I experienced was an authentically spiritual uh, event? Uh, Edwards answers the question by diving into the affections, uh, basically his word for the, the driving force of human life. Uh, love, if we, want, if we want to call the affections love, that's fine as long as we have a big definition of love. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, at root, uh, the affections are what separate the Christian from the non-Christian. Uh, the, the non-Christian has his affections set ultimately upon himself. Uh, the Christian has been changed through grace uh, by the work of Christ, has had, had his affections reoriented so that they're now set upon Christ. Uh, but that said, the, the religious affections isn't really a book about how to tell a Christian from a non-Christian. Uh, if, you, if you read it with that in view, it'll just utterly crush you. Uh, you'll, you'll come away thinking, I must not be a Christian. Uh, Edwards also says it won't help you measure anyone else, and it won't help if you're dishonest. So there's a lot of caveats going into the book. Mm. Uh, the, the point is to, to weigh the authenticity of a particular experience. Uh, so, you know, you were, you were at that revival meeting and, and sitting and listening politely. Uh, and the next thing you know, you're, you're weeping and laughing and clinging to the tent pole, afraid you're about to be thrown into hell or delighted that you get to go to heaven or, or uh, you know, people in the Great Awakening were, were so overcome, they were, you know, passing out and falling unconscious. Uh, how do you know that that's a legitimate action of the Holy Spirit in your life as, a, as opposed to just getting caught up in the emotions of the moment? Uh, so Edwards uh, gives these uh, these twelve signs uh, that that we won't go over uh, just for purposes of time uh, that that do not count as evidence of it being a movement of the Holy Spirit. So these are things that might happen to you, but they're uh, in in any objective sense they're irrelevant uh, in terms of authenticity. Uh, kind of the the big three. Uh, sincerity and confidence are not signs of an authentic experience. Uh, so, you know, you, you're, you're really sincere and confident in it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't make it legitimate. Uh, having a physical effect on your body doesn't make it legitimate, right? So if we were, uh, if you were writing today, Edwards would likely point out that drugs and alcohol can genuinely affect your body. Uh, doesn't mean it's a divine experience. Uh, and then a, uh, a direct quote, uh, which I, I think is a good one. Edward says it is no sign one way or the other that religious affections are very great or raised very high. Uh, So that you feel it really, really deeply doesn't make an experience authentic. 
Uh, and then he gives 12 signs that, uh, the, that the experience was authentic. Uh, again, not to go over all of them, uh, but he says that, that a, a legitimate and authentic religious experience uh, will illuminate the beauty of the relationship uh, between the person of God and the conversion of the sinner. Uh, so you'll, you'll see uh, uh, God in his personal relationship to you uh, and you having been changed from, from what you were, uh, both of those through the filter of, of beauty. Uh, uh, he says that a, a, a genuine uh, religious experience should uh, lead to the desire for holiness. Uh, so we should want to fight sin and pursue virtue. Uh, and then uh, above all, uh, the direct result of, of an authentic experience will be action, uh, uh, the, the lived Christian life in practice. So if daily life isn't changed in the direction of holiness, then it wasn't an, an authentic experience. And the standard for everything, the standard for all of these, he says, is to be scripture, which you know probably goes without saying. Okay, oh, so that's a uh, yeah. Sorry. Go well, ahead. and that scripture then is the sort of way that we understand the authority uh, that we're right. submitting to in order to be authentic. Okay. Right. Go ahead. And, and yeah, and that's that's a massive gloss on you know a five hundred page book. Uh, and and uh, just uh, to to give an even more massive gloss on a slightly longer book, uh, why why is there such a problem with authenticity? Why is this the sort of thing that he has to he has to even deal with? Uh, and, and it's because there's a problem both with us and with all of existence. So I would say if you're concerned with authenticity, read the religious affections, uh, but also read Edward's book Original Sin, uh, which which talks about why it is that some of the things that we're we're going to do are ultimately so insufficient. Uh, and, and again, I can't really sum up that 500-page book in a few sentences, but he basically says that you and I don't have an existence or even an identity that's based on ourselves, uh, but rather is directly grounded on the creative work of God. So ultimately, we're not our own standard. Uh, and where we get into trouble is when we try to make ourselves our own standard. Okay. Anyway, that's that's Edwards, probably enough on, on him. Okay. Um, and so that's a, a entirely alien idea of authenticity to the, to a modern person, I think. Um, oh, sure. And so I think uh, we have to, I would like to at least start thinking about how that changed over, over time. And I'm wondering, I mean, it seems to me that I'm wondering if the, the romantic era uh, in literature, at least, is a point at which I start seeing people engaging with that concept differently um, where it's much more internally focused and they're being true to oneself, which is something somehow unique and distinct from one's environment and one's uh, role in society. Yeah. And the, uh, the, the, the great villain here, if, if we have to have a single great villain uh, is Emerson, right? Uh, he's a, uh, uh, and, and I say that as someone who who has a lot of respect for Emerson and who agrees with, with a lot of what he says, um, at least in the American setting, I, I don't know as much about what's going on in Europe. Uh, but but Emerson uh, repeatedly calls for the American individual to to shed the restraints that that keep him from you know authentic self awareness, uh, and then asks the question you know what does it mean to be self aware what does it mean to be self reliant and, and independent. Uh, and uh, Emerson has all of these different ways of of saying it. Uh, a quote from Emerson: "That is always best which gives me to myself. Uh, the sublime is excited in me by the great stoical doctrine: obey thyself." That which shows God in me fortifies me. That which shows God out of me makes me a wart and a win. Um, mm. And then a, a, another quote. I think that's from from self reliance. Uh, an, another quote. Uh, 
Uh, I read the other day some verses written by an eminent painter which were original and not conventional. Always the soul hears an admonition in such lines, let the subject be what it may. The sentiment they instill is of more value than any thought uh, they may contain. To believe your own thought, to believe that what is true for you and your private heart is true for all men, that is genius. Speak your latest conviction and it shall be the universal sense, for always the inmost becomes the outmost. A man should learn to detect and watch that gleam of light which flashes across his mind from within more than the luster of the firmament of bards and sages. Uh, so we, we obviously have a very different standard for authenticity than, than that that Edwards is giving us. Right? Uh, for, for Edwards, you're untrustworthy. For Emerson, you're the only thing that's trustworthy. Exactly. Um, and that and Emerson sounds pretty much like what I hear when people talk about authenticity today. I mean, even within the church, I think that um, you've got this uh, this movement of, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious, right? Uh, this is kind of right. a, a, a phrase that gets bandied about. And it always seems a little hollow to me on some level, which for reasons, I guess we could get into more detail later. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there is this uh, more self-driven focus right uh, for the for the term authenticity um you've got some uh philosophers uh that you'd like to talk about <laughs> here as well oh yeah if, if i must uh so in the in the 20th century uh the, the the great philosopher and i think you guys do talk about this in your your christian humanist authenticity episode uh is heidegger right he's he's the big philosopher of authenticity uh he he argues that uh you know true thought is is uh and this is a I always hesitate to quote Heidegger because he's not very quotable. But uh, uh, he says, "True thought is neither theoretical nor practical. It comes to pass. Uh, comes to pass before this distinction. Uh, it lets being be." Uh, so the, the the purpose of authentic human reflection isn't to uh, to shape uh, yourself. Uh, it's not to provide ethical guidance for for mankind. It's it's to reveal what already exists, uh, and that may lead to ethical guidance and information. It may be the result of it, but that's that's not the reason you go into it. Uh, so existence in itself becomes the, the focus of study. Uh, which, which again is is basically what Emerson is saying, right? You you, you just need to, uh, although Heidegger is expanding that from just the self to the whole universe, uh, it's is functionally the same principle at work uh, uh, in a different setting. I don't I don't think Heidegger or Emerson are really the reason that uh, that modern Christians are are so obsessed with authenticity. Although of course they're they're indirectly important. Uh, I don't think modern Christians are sitting around reading Emerson or Heidegger, uh, at least not, not very often. Um, I think the guy who who is important, who brings a lot of these same ideas to the table, is uh, is Kierkegaard. Um, there's there's been sort of a renaissance of if Kierkegaard studies in the last what 30, 40 years. Uh, I'm I'm not a Kierkegaard scholar. Uh, but he's a uh, he's he's doing something similar, uh, although it has to be with the the very important caveat that I think he himself is personally orthodox. Uh, so I, I suspect that had he read Jonathan Edwards, he would have agreed with basically everything Edwards was was saying. Uh, but still, the, uh, uh, the the language he uh, he uses, the the thing that he encourages us to do is to search for this authentic Christianity uh, as opposed to the the cold dead orthodoxy of the state church. Mm. Um, and uh, you, you probably know more about Kierkegaard than I do. Uh, anything you want to throw in there? No, I know less about Kierkegaard than anyone, I think. Um, and so, <laughs> um, but uh, that but that statement there, um, I think that may, that does sound very much to me like when I hear Christians talk about um, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? Religion right. Has, has become this kind of false 
set of practices um, that are somehow uh, apart from the the true worship of God, right? There, there's some sort of mediation between a person and their worship of God, and therefore they are false, right? And that's why people, that's why I, I think that's the source of this rejection of denominations and that sort of thing, right? Um, people are leaving those kinds of trappings behind. And it sounds exactly like what Kierkegaard just wrote, what, what you just read from Kierkegaard. Um, and, right. That was not a quote, by the way. That was just a summary. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds exactly, I mean, that, like that summary then. Um, so, and I was recently at a family reunion, actually, and and uh, not my family, my wife's family, uh, but somebody was talking about how religion is just man-made and, and you know, spirituality is, is different, right? And Christianity is actually different than religion. And I, and I just felt like that was such a sloppy, uh, lazy way to approach the question. I mean, I'm not particularly conservative in my own, um, you know, orthodoxy or whatever, right? And so I, I get the the rejection of some of the traditions that we inherit, right? And I think in some cases it's good to reject some of those traditions. Um, but you can't like just say that the faith of Christianity is something apart from religious practice when every step of the Bible, it's God telling somebody to do something ritualistically. Right. And so that right. those practices um, were not uh, false, right. That was actually part of the plan. And so I feel like this, I feel like that's an extreme example that that statement that I heard of this, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, but all of the, those kinds of statements suffer in the same way, I think, uh, to some degree. And, and I feel like <clears throat> it's a totally, it's a total break from Edwards, what we were just talking about with Edwards, um, because it's a total break with his I idea of authenticity then. Um, so authenticity for these spiritual, not religious people is something that's completely different than, uh, the authenticity in a pre-modern sense. Um, yeah, and, I, and um, maybe you want to get into this. I uh, hope I'm not jumping the gun, but it, no. authenticity in the modern sense both means I, it, it's something that I deeply believe, therefore it's true, something that I deeply feel, therefore it's true. Uh, and it, it becomes a sort of blackmail, right? I mean, it becomes sort of the, the mic drop uh, that who, who could ever disagree with that? Right. Uh, of, of course, I, I authentically feel it. And you, you can't tell me I don't. Uh, I mean, what the, the response is, is really only going to be your your feelings are wrong or stupid or evil, uh, which Edwards would have no problem saying. But uh, we, we, we can't hear that in the modern world because our, our feelings have become or, or our, our inner self. I shouldn't just say feelings, but our our inner self has become the, the dominant theme. Yeah. And unless we think that this is just a, a phenomenon of religious people, I do want to talk about this in social settings and <clears throat> artistic settings and, and, and everything else, or not everything else, but <laughs> in many other ways as sure. well. Um, but I found a clip from of Sheryl Sandberg, who is no friend of the show. Uh, I, I'm not a big admirer of the lean in movement. Um, but uh, uh, she I, she's the CEO of Facebook, right? And so, or a, a an executive with Facebook. She's not the CEO. But, uh, and so she is this sort of corporate um, mentality about things. And I found uh, a clip of her talking about authenticity in discourse and uh, communication. And so this is, uh, uh, I think, something we can discuss, the ideology behind what she's saying. But you have to ask yourself if you're in a group, whether it's a friend group or a family circle or in a business that you're trying to lead as an entrepreneur, how do you get to the truth? How do you make great decisions when no one's saying the truth? How do you communicate authentically? How do you figure out what to say and what not to say in a way that's authentic? 
And what Fred says, and I really believe this is true, is it starts from the fundamental understanding that there is no truth. There's my truth, there's your truth, that everything is subjective. And so if you always start from the position of, this is what I believe, I don't expect you to believe it, I don't think you have to believe it, I'm not saying it's true, you can actually always communicate authentically. Because if you walk in the room, and this gets worse as you get more senior, here's the answer, you're not giving anyone else any room to say anything. And if you walk in the room and say, I believe this for this reason, what do you believe? If you share your truth in that language, you give people room to authenticate, to communicate authentically. And that is hugely important to these relationships at any stage. Yeah, so I that is extremely troubling to me, that 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 statement. Um, because it as you're saying, it distinguishes I, I think she's got a wrong use of terms for one thing. I mean she's talking about truth as if belief and truth are the same thing, right? And so when the CEO walks into the room and says, this is what I believe, that's not necessarily his truth. That's just what he believes, right? Uh, and so she totally conflates that in this schema here. And, and I think that it's extremely troubling. And at the beginning of this little clip that, that I didn't play, uh, she talks about people scaling themselves and, and these sorts of things. Uh, these This techno jargon that uh, business types are you know like to use. Um, and then well, I was start, assuming like a fish scaler type situation. <laughs> yeah, no, no. There's some sort of uh, presentation of self. I think is what she means. But you know, they have right. this techno babble that they that they use, and uh, and as if that's authentic discourse, right? Uh, but anyway, um, what did you think about what she said, and what stands out to you? I, I forgot to look at this when you sent me the clip. When when was this from? Oh gosh, I don't even know. Uh, if you hang on, I may be able to look at it. Uh, it was published on, in 2011. Uh, I don't okay. know if that's when it was reported uh, or not. I cannot imagine that's something she would say today, uh, assuming that she's still in the same position in Facebook or whatever. Uh, one, one of the things I've appreciated most about the Trump presidency, and please don't quote me out of context on this. <laughs> I'm going uh, to edit this so you say something completely different. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> one, one of the things I've appreciated most about the Trump presidency is how all of these postmoderns have rediscovered absolute truth. Uh <laughs> And uh, I think I talked about this the last time I was on your show. If, if, uh, if you go and listen to the the, the uh, Theology Beer Camp episodes that the, went up on the Christian Humanist podcast that Nathan Gilmore went to, uh, it, it, they are by and large, you know, postmoderns, uh, uh, sort of all truth is relative type people. Uh, all of a sudden, Donald Trump comes along with his alternative facts. <laughs> like, yeah, this, this is his truth. And now the, the great outcry from the left is, no, 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 that's not what we meant. Right. You don't get to have your own truth. It's all our truth. So I'm, I'm assuming something is similar with this lady. And maybe she's a Trump supporter. I don't know. Like maybe she, she, she went, went in that way. I, I, I couldn't say for sure. Uh, I would not guess that she is. Yeah. That would surprise me, but yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it, it's, uh, it's probably, probably, uh, 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 you're, you're probably right that she's, uh, uh, she's, she's mixing up terms that shouldn't be mixed up. I also think she doesn't actually believe any of that. Uh, again, because I, I suspect that in the light of the Trump presidency, she wouldn't stand on any of that when, when applied to the other side. And I think that's generally true on both the right and the left, right? If, if you're a postmodern on the right, postmodern on the left, when you bump into someone who holds the extreme opposite view that you do, all of a sudden you're not such a postmodern anymore. Uh, authenticity in that sense is no longer something that everyone has their own. It's it's yours and it's only yours. 
Right. And well, and it's situational and it's not driven necessarily by um, any kind of guiding principles, anything external. Right. And I think that's kind of what, right. we're, what we're getting at here. Um, I So this might be a time for me to interject trilling and um his lionel <laughs> trilling is sort of my favorite critic you know and, and he was involved with partisan review and, and 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 that new york intellectual crowd and so he's kind of somebody i've always gravitated to um but his last kind of major thing that he did uh in 1972 i think in very early 70s uh it was a book called sincerity and authenticity um, and it's it's a very confusing little book uh, in a lot of ways, but it's really its main idea is to distinguish uh, is to trace a change what he sees in the in the modern life. Uh, and he calls uh, he identifies it as a switch from sincerity to authenticity, which two words, they kind of sound alike. I mean, if you look them up in dictionaries, you'll find very similar definitions, right? Um, but he uh, finds a distinction in them and finds, and he traces some consequences for us switching from one to the other as a kind of primary mode of engaging with the world. Uh, and he, he kind of bases this on um, uh, Polonius's speech in Hamlet, where he says, to thine own self be true, and then you can't be false to anybody else, right? Um, that's a paraphrase. That's the, the easy Shakespeare version, I guess. But um, um, and, and what he sees in that statement is that being true to, one, to oneself is an act of being true to other people. So it's like a social act uh, to find the, the trueness of one's own nature is not that's not the end of that activity. The end is to make a, a better social uh, cohesion, uh, right? And so that's sincerity to trilling, right? Um, that's what he's, it's a sincere uh, engagement with another person. Um, it's kind of like a, a good faith or arguing sort of in a lot of ways, right? Um, and what he sees in authenticity is this isolation from as isolation of the public role, like the the private and the public are not necessarily engaged in that same kind of uh, dialogue, uh, in that same kind of relationship. And so the switch from sincerity to authenticity for Trilling is a switch from a concern with the greater good, the greater social, uh, to a concern with one's own kind of happiness and benefit and that sort of thing, right? Um, and in the last episode of the show, uh, we talked about minimalism. And I'm just sort of thinking about how to apply this to that that question. So there are ways that there are people who practice minimalism out of this, uh, this makes me happy, this gives me peace, right? And so that's uh, an authenticity of uh, within oneself, right? But there are also environmental reasons, for example, or economic reasons to consume less stuff, right? And that's more of a sincere uh, activity. And so I think that's how Trilling might uh, categorize those two things. And I think that um, that's a really smart um, observation. I think that, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't use sincerity in the same way that Jonathan Edwards was using, um, because uh, he would say sincerity, you know, meaning it well, doesn't necessarily make it authentic, right? Um, but it's still like along those lines, and it, and it has some sort of role for the social, for the, for the greater good. Well, I, I guess I, since I haven't read Trilling, I might, might ask you to clarify that a little bit. It, it sounded a little bit like his definition of sincerity was my way of loving you is just really loving myself a lot. And then that will sort of spill over onto you. And the authenticity is just you cut off the concern with it spilling over. Um, 
I so let me think. I, I'm not. That's a little harsher than I think he means it. Um, although his use of Polonius as a model for this is is weird because I don't even know yeah. what I don't even know what Polonius means by that speech, right? I mean, he that that's a weird character. So that that's one thing that's always confused me about this metaphor that he uses. But that's the model that he uses that that statement. Um, and so we'll just assume Polonius means it in the best possible sense, right? Um, and so what I think uh, it's less that I'm going to fill up my own cup and then you'll get the best of me, right? I, I don't think that it's necessarily that, but it's the search for one's true self so that one can better contribute to society, right? Um, it, it, one can better contribute to society if, I, if I'm doing something that I truly love to do as a career, right? Like teaching is, is right. I think, a good calling for me. That is sort of an authentic um, expression of, my work. Right. Um, and once I dis and it's important to discover that because if I'd gone into accounting or something like that, I would contribute a lot less to society. Right. Because I hadn't found my own gifts. Right. That I can contribute to society. I think trilling means something more along those lines. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I could see that going either way. Right. I could, I could see it being the, uh, I'm, I'm going to find, like you said, I'm going to find my gift and I'm gonna find out that I'm a master woodworker and I really like doing it. And I'm, I'm going to go out and do that and that'll make every society better. Or it could be, I'm really pretty, and society is is made better just by me being as pretty as I can possibly be. Uh, yeah. Either either way, right? Um, neither of those things applies to me, so I can use both of those as examples. <laughs> and again, I don't know that uh, which one actually applies to Polonius best, right? Polonius is such a duplicitous character. Uh, oh, yeah. I don't I don't know how to how to actually take any of his words, but uh, taking him at the word uh, as it's written. I think that, I think that's what Trilling's getting at. That book is very complicated uh, and, and, and it's a little strange um, uh, to, to read. And, and it's uh, it's kind of a puzzle. But when you see people write about sincerity or authenticity, excuse me, um, they usually do cite this book in some way. Uh, it is has become kind of a go to for people who are interested in this question, whether they agree with him or not, that is sort of a bouncing off point. I think he's done a good job of establishing some terms for us to um, build on or reject or whatnot. And, and, and I think actually um, I'm largely compelled by that distinction. When I think about, um, um, you know, a pre-modern sense of being true to yourself, it isn't, yourself as the end right there is sort of a, a, a and i think that's where the romantics kind of change things is where we this sort of into, uh, internalization of things um this is a much more academic discussion than many of our episodes have been um but uh, but it's good though it, i mean we have to get into some of these terms i think so um anything to add to that discussion or, or build off of no no i i think that's good um i i guess i i might want to uh to throw into your your pre-modern thing, just the, the importance as a Christian to remember that authenticity, if you're being true to yourself and so on, that does have to include sin. Right? And I think that might be a major difference uh, between sort of the Edwards Kierkegaard on, on one side to, to keep the Christians in one camp. And uh, I guess I don't know, I know nothing of Trilling, but Heidegger and, and Emerson on the other, uh, and then wherever Trilling falls in is uh, for, for all of their differences. Otherwise, Edwards and Kierkegaard both still believe in original sin. And that's that's always going to be a stumbling block in the modern definition of authenticity. Uh, no one goes into it thinking, I'm going to be really authentic, and that means I'm an awful person. Yeah. And I'm just going to externalize my awfulness to the full. 
they'll they'll change the language. They'll call it virtue. They'll call it goodness. They'll say this this awful thing I'm doing is really good. No one wants to to be truly authentic in that way. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, part of me, I have to agree with you. Um, in part here, part of me is puzzled at a religion that doesn't that doesn't condemn you at all, right? Uh, like to to right. define Christianity solely in ways that neatly fit in your political or, or whatever social views of the world. Um, I don't see the point, frankly, in, in removing any kind of corrective uh, function from religion. I don't understand why you would practice that. Um, and so um, like part of the thing I like about Christianity is that I don't like all the rules. Right. And, and that I think is, is good for me. Right. And so um, not necessarily that it's rule based, but you know what I'm saying? Right. Um, um, so I think, like I said, there are a number of spheres that uh, of life of existence that this term applies to and gets sort of bandied about in Cheryl Sandberg has just sort of um, introduced one, the sort of interpersonal uh relationships and communication. Um, I would like to kind of dwell on that for just a little bit if we can. Um, so one of the thing when my students like tend to talk about themselves and just being like, well, I'm not going to put on a fake face for you and that should be commendable. Uh, right. That that's commend that, that makes me a, uh, an honest person because I'm not it's usually code for, I didn't do my homework. <laughs> yeah, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there, and, and there's an increasing sense of, well, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to own that because that's me. Right. Um, I, I, I find that to be like hilariously, uh, naive uh and i and the so the, the subject the conversation that follows usually is like are you the same person with your grandma do you act the same with your grandma as you do with your friends do you act the same um in front of me as you do with your friends or your parents right and so like which is your true self then right and so um like to me the the thing that's left out of that is there is also always a performance involved in authenticity, right? And I think that that's one way that uh, that our idolization of this term is just kind of falls short is because it, it's paradoxical in a lot of ways. There is you have to perform a true self, no matter how you define that true self. Um, go ahead. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's right, and I think. Uh, uh, there's there's a sense in which uh, when you when you're trying to strip away the performance, it ends up being exceptionally lonely, like in terms of interpo- interpersonal relations and, and communication. Uh, if you want someone to be able to talk to you based on who you are deep down and you want to be able to talk to them based on who they are deep down, at the end of the day, you're never really going to be able to do that because you're two separate people. Uh, and that's where to, uh, to to bring it back to the academic level. Uh, that's where uh, Francis Schaeffer steps in oh, right, good, in, in yeah. the '60s and '70s, and uh, has uh, has has a lot to say uh, because he's he's running into people, uh, particularly people on the new left who are you know backpacking through Europe and and doing the, the sorts of things that uh, college students did in the '60s and '70s, and they've they've sort of imbibed all of this stuff, uh, and it's just wrecked their worldview because now they they they're, they're people who are in a relationship, but they they can't actually say they love each other because they don't know if it's true, and they don't want to just put on the facade. They're they're people who uh, uh, want to say that they they like their parents, but again, it's there's that power relationship of parent child in between, and they can't do that. Uh, and uh, and Schaefer writes his his trilogy basically in response to this. So. Uh, uh, 
Oh, what are, what are the first two? Uh, the God Who Is There and Escape From Reason sort of outline the uh, uh, how Schaefer thinks this problem started, uh, how, how we end up with this this difficulty as a, as a civilization. Uh, and then he is there and he is not silent. Uh, Schaefer says, hey, the Christian gospel has the solution to this. right? Uh, the gospel comes to us through this external propositional revelation, uh, which, which both tells us who we are, uh, and enables us to have actual relationships with each other uh, because none of this is based on us, right? It, it takes the pressure off of us to live ourselves authentically, gives us a chance to confess, gives us a chance to repent, uh, and then draws us into a community with others. Uh, so re- repentance and faith rather than expression of, of the true self uh, become the, the keys to uh, to these, these meaningful relationships and meaningful conversations, uh, not just being more and more in tune with our inner desires. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. That that's the the perfect answer, but it's it's certainly one that's been given from from a, a Christian perspective. Yeah, and it's one that um, is also. I mean, I think that that fits in nicely with the sincerity versus authenticity uh, schema, right? Um, so right. yeah, where there's a there's a there's some sort of engagement with an external uh, involved in the equation right. with with sincerity, whereas there is not in the authenticity, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. And so I think that that's sort of a very basic level of just how human beings to inhabit the world, you will be in different rhetorical situations. And I mean, that's the first rule of rhetoric is who is my audience, right? I have to decide who my audience is in order to uh, decide how to craft my message for that audience, make the decisions within those constraints, right? And so um, just the idea of rhetoric, I think, blows holes in the idea of authenticity, right? Um, and I think supports some to some degree the postmodern uh idea of subjectivity. I mean, I, I do think on some level um, that everything is at least rhetorically subjective, right? I mean, you, you, <laughs> you, uh, I, I'm not, I, I'm not saying that there is no truth. I would not say that. Right. Um, but what I would say is that it is constructed continually. Right. Uh, and, and through tradition, through inherited traditions, through things that are challenging those traditions, um, truth is something that has to be sort of, uh, divined, I guess. Uh, with, uh, and, and so, uh, and I, I do think that on some level I probably have more sympathy. I know that I have more sympathy for most for postmodernism than you do. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, and so, uh, but, and I think that's why, as I think that, uh, just to go through the world, you are encountering, even if I encounter the same person in in a different situation, my presentation of self might be different depending on that situation. Right. Um, and so I think, sure. yeah. And, and, but that doesn't, that doesn't mean that it's not also that the presentation isn't also a part of you. And that, that may be part of the issue with modern authenticity too, is, is it, it's not like there's a you and then there's a you that you present. You're, you're the same person. You just act differently in different situations and, Maybe there's just a rhetorical difference, but I, I think it psychologically helps a lot uh, when you think of it in those terms rather than thinking, oh, I'm a different person here than I am there. Sure. Right. Um, and there are like words I can use at home that I can't use at work. Right. And there, right. And, and, and vice versa. Uh, and if I go to a job interview, I'm going to dress in a way that isn't natural to my desires. Right. Uh, these are all sorts of uh, performances, basically. And so this is where. I think, again, the discourse on authenticity fails because it rejects the idea of performance, right? Uh, and so uh, I think that um, we have to own the fact that we have to perform authenticity based on various 
social situations, right? And which is, again, right. this is where I fall right in line with Trilling. I think that's sincerity. I think that that is, uh, that is basically what he means by sincerity. Um, so, yeah. Um, there are other uh, aspects. We've talked a little, uh, quite a bit about religion already. Um, do you have anything else to sort of add? I think Frank Schaefer or Francis Schaefer was a good, yeah. uh, <laughs> was a good, uh, uh, yeah, Frank Schaefer, for those of you who don't understand the, the chuckle uh, we just shared, that's Francis Schaefer's son. Um, and I happened to hear him speak uh, about a year ago, and I was just appalled by <laughs> by the man. And so, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, no, that's that's fair. Um, yeah, he was authentic, but he was authentically yeah. a, an a hole, right? And so, <laughs> so uh, well, yeah, I, I I can't speak to that. Uh, his uh, his theology has just gone off the rails. I, I can't I can't say that. Um, yeah, uh, religiously, I mean, uh, the the big. The big religious thing we, we associate with authenticity is the emerging church, right? Um, and again, I think the last time I was on your show, I, I suggested David Wells as, as the place to go and, and read about that. Uh, his uh, Courage to be Protestant or the, the five books that are sort of the, the groundwork for that are, uh, are all excellent and go in-depth into what's going on with the emerging church. Uh, and I, I think I said this last time too. You you can understand their concerns, right? They're they're reacting to the uh, the marketing movement, right? Reacting to the megachurch movement, reacting to uh, uh, the '70s and '80s idea that we'll just steal ideas from the business world and apply those to the church, and that'll get lots of people in the seats. And once they're in the seats, we can share the gospel, and, and everything will work out from there. Uh, and then you have these emergent folks who, at the end of the '80s and in the early '90s, uh, and, and then through the '90s, uh, come along and say, "Hey." Uh, that's that's not authentic Christianity, right? You're you're not really having a true relationship with ten thousand people in a stadium. Uh, we we need uh, back to the house church movement. We need uh, smaller groups. We need uh, oh, and and you can sort of I, I don't even know all of the different names for the different movements there are. Um, there, there's a lot to be said that's commendable there. Uh, that's, that's where maybe I am a little more sympathetic with some of the postmodern stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not just because it makes modernism look better, but like, because <laughs> there's actually something there. Uh, uh, but uh, as I think you pointed out at the beginning of this episode, there, there is some throwing the baby out with the bathwater right there. There, uh, when you, uh, when you were stripping away, uh, all of those externals, uh, what often happens is that doctrine and uh, practice get stripped, like legitimate practice, get stripped away with it. Uh, you you end up uh, taking uh, either never taking communion or taking it inappropriately. Inappropriately, uh, you end up uh, either never baptizing or, or baptizing wrongly. Uh, you you end up never, certainly never practicing church discipline or or uh, practicing practicing it wrongly. Yeah, I mean it's the emerging church has has its strengths. Uh, but from what I have seen, it it has a lot of weaknesses too, and I, I think there might be more of them. And I think they might be because of this uh, desire for authenticity that often strips standing on scripture, mm. uh, often uh, often uh, replaces standing on scripture. That might be overly uncharitable. I'm I'm not an expert in in the emerging church movement. Um, yeah, you know Danny, what, uh, what? What do you know about? I'm sure. I'm going to say this is not me this time. Broad brush is coming back on the outside. Something's on the inside. Ha. <laughs> Coyle got the broad brush that time. No, no. Um, uh, I, I I tend to agree with you, actually. The I, And I'm actually curious, as you were talking, wondering what the state of the house church movement is. Like, um, is, is it? I, 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 How would you know? Yeah, that's, I mean. this is my question. I actually, so I actually went to a, I guess a seminar or something once. I, this is back when I lived in Cleveland and our church was invited to a, a, a bigger church of our denomination to host um, Neil Cole, uh, who's sort of a, a, a figure in the house church movement. 
uh, and he was basically talking about how the build the church that we were actually in is the root of all these problems, and uh, it was a very ironic kind of uh, play the thing to witness in a lot of ways. But I remember one thing he said that was very strange to me it was, you know, you, you have a house church and there are kind of general rules, I think, about how big that can get before it's supposed to split off and you form another house church. And and he said that after like three or four generations, he doesn't even know, he has no contact with the results of his, of his ministry, right? Those house churches are free floating forms basically. And he has no idea what they're doing. I mean, and, and so, I mean, they could be sacrificing goats to bail for all he knows. <laughs> right. You know, and, uh, right. uh and, and I'm just like, I, I felt that to be a very, I don't know, flippant kind of uh, like approach. And he didn't seem troubled by this, I guess on some levels, why it was right. so flippant. Um, but yeah, I do feel like that was authenticity without any kind of concern for the social right and and so i do feel like um that bothered me on some level and i've always been a little maybe i i had too much of a that that that's my only sort of in uh interaction with that movement and so maybe i'm putting too much maybe it's not all like that i guess is what i'm saying but it, it did kind of make me kind of some ways hostile <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to the house church movement um yeah, and, and I mean, I, I my objection with, to the house church movement isn't so much that, and, and obviously some of that some of that is situational. Not to get too subjective here, but if you're uh, if you're in Iran or China or something like that, yeah, of course you have to do a house church, and, yeah. and there's no objection to that whatsoever. Um, in America, uh, again, from the from the little I know, yes, there there can be some authenticity run amok to the point where it you know just. Uh, 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 does do damage. Uh, my, my objection, though, isn't so much the uh, the size of the church and the, the lack of hierarchical control. Being a Baptist, I, I can't object to that. Uh, <laughs> my my objection would be more um, that the idea that part of what a church should do is be a community that is somewhat diverse. Uh, so, and and I mean that in in kind of the broadest possible sense. So uh, diversity of economic class, diversity of racial class, diversity of social class, uh, diversity of ages, right? Uh, diversity of uh, uh, you know old people and children and, and so on and everything in between. Now, I don't think that's like a hard and fast rule. Uh, if your church is in a place where there are demographically only elderly white people, hey, that's fine. That's that's how it is. Uh, but but in general, uh, you should you should have a church that is. Uh, uh, oh, a, a spectrum of people and house churches. I think uh, tend to be one, two, three, or four families. Uh, they're they're not really a, a large spectrum of people uh, living in community, and and that that can run into issues. Uh, or even I suppose issues of authenticity, uh, where in, instead of uh, again instead of maybe doing the things that a church should do, it becomes sort of a uh, a mutual affirmation society. Yeah. Uh, again, maybe maybe that's overly uncharitable. I, I'm there's there's that broad brush again, right? Uh, I'm uh, <laughs> I'm not familiar enough with it. Most of the house churches that I know of are are failed church plants. Uh, they're, they're church plants that tried to tried to take off and, and didn't make it, so they they sort of collapse into house churches. Um, but I, I assume there I, I know there are a handful of house churches even in my area that were started intentionally as house churches yeah. uh, it's, I don't know where they went because they don't have you know websites or anything like that so it's hard to follow them since I'm a member of my own church yeah 
Yeah, and and I guess to Neil Cole's credit, I do remember him. I do remember part of his presentation being about going into um, areas that the that frankly the institutional church has has neglected, uh, and right. and reaching out to people in those other communities. And so he he did I to his credit seek diversity right uh, in, in those in those communities. But even that. Uh, is, is a challenge to the, the idea of authenticity. I mean, cause you, in order to reach those communities, you're going to have to perform a certain way. Now I, I know sure. this from a experience. I mean, I went to a, an inner city church in Cleveland. That's where I was a member um, at a little Alliance, a Christian missionary Alliance church there. And, and our sort of target demographic were the sort of the unchurched people of the inner city. Right. And I'm not going to, I had to, I had to present myself in a frankly inauthentic way in order to like be even like conversational with, with some folks. Right. Uh, and, and uh, there's a performance involved with there that, that throw that I think flies in the face of a simplistic version of what authenticity is. And I guess that's the goal of this show is of this episode, at least is to not necessarily claim that you can't be authentic, but at least to get us to a point where we're using a, a, a more robust <laughs> uh, idea of what it is to be. So, so um, yeah. So uh, anything else about religion before we move on? No, no, we've, we probably beat that horse enough. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, but it is like, to me, one of the kind of main arenas where people, I mean, you could even one last thing, I guess, to, before we move on, we talk about worship services and the, the <laughs> you know, the people, you know, the kinds of services that become popular, you know, the, we talked before about glowing bracelets and all that sort of thing. Um, um, I mean, that's to be authentic, right? That's to reach people where they are and that sort of thing. I mean, that, that the motivation for some of that ridiculousness is this kind of, quixotic approach or quixotic as a quest after authenticity right and so yeah okay i I will do one more on religion uh (laughs) for crying out loud if you are leading a prayer during a church service write it down beforehand (laughs) i mean i i know the pushback is that's not authentic but mumbling into a microphone for two minutes incoherently is also not authentic that's a really good point. So why is writing down a prayer in advance not authentic? I mean, it's still, I don't know. It's still you doing it. You're just sort of organizing your thoughts, right? Honestly, uh, I would I would say I would I would not even have a problem with stealing a prayer from someone else. <laughs> every one of Calvin's commentaries, like every passage in Calvin's commentaries, opens and closes with a prayer. And John Calvin is a much better pray, uh, prayer than you or I will ever be. Steal one of those, adapt it to modern times. All of that's fine. Write it down beforehand and save yourself and the congregation from having to listen to, you know, every other word being just. Yeah. Like, yeah, <laughs> I I totally agree. And I've always felt like I was the worst world's worst public prayer. Like, uh, and when I was at a, a college, I was at a, a, where Nathan teaches, uh, and during faculty meetings we would pray, and when the the VPAA would ask me to do the prayer. I would just like, you know, I suck at this, <laughs> you know, but I, I, so I am like really kind of self-conscious because I can't do that sort of spontaneous performative prayer that some people do so well. Right. Um, I, and yeah. I always, I feel like, yeah, that expectation of that kind of authenticity 
really rubs me the wrong way <laughs> because I'm just not good at it, I guess. If, if I had a smartphone, I would have one, like a canned one, ready to go just in, in case that ever happened. Uh, but yeah, when, whenever whenever I know I'm going to have to pray publicly, I always write it down and I usually steal it from someone else uh, and, <laughs> and modify it. Uh, and it's I've, I've never had a complaint about that other than every once in a while someone will ask, why well, didn't, you know, were you just reading the prayer? And I'll say, well, yeah, I didn't want to have to come up with it on the spot. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not saying that like God necessarily cares, but in terms of someone who's leading prayer in a, you know, congregational service, I think you're serving the congregation better when you have it, you know, better prepared. Unless you're one of these folks who can just uh, can bring it, you know, like on the spot. Hey, um, mo- that's that's fine. Most people aren't. Most people are. <laughs> Many people aren't. Let me just say that I've, I've sat through a lot of uh, eye rollers, I guess. Um, so, but who am I to who am I to judge the the the, the merits of someone's prayer? I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, I I know that you're uh, in political science and you're a political philosopher and. Um, uh, but art, uh, I, do you have any ideas about how the idea of authenticity arises and, and, and informs our view of art? You know, I don't, I don't know enough about the history of art, uh, but I suspect that it's somehow Jackson Pollock's fault. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe Picasso. I, I don't know for sure. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm just not enough of an artist to know. Uh, I, my, my general rule is if it's the sort of thing that I could do, it shouldn't count as art. <laughs> like just because someone did it first that that shouldn't make it like somehow great arts uh but again I'm, i i i i don't know enough about that yeah well i was even thinking broadly construed not just fine art but poetry or or, or literature or whatnot um and, and and so i mean i know that there are you know debates about you know the speaker of a poem, for example. And if it's the speaker says, I, it's a more, some people would claim that it's a more authentic poem. If the I that is the voice of the poem is actually the speaker, right. Um, rather than a, a character that the speaker is drawing up uh, for that poem. Um, and, and I've always kind of felt that to be, I don't know, a little simplistic and, and, uh, and not necessarily, um, I don't know. I feel like that that reduces the the role of art for for one thing, but also uh, I feel I feel like it kind of undermines a, a robust definition of what authentic is. I don't. Do you have any opinions on that? Nope. <laughs> I should have known. Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> That's uh, okay. That's okay. Um, and I do. I have to bring up Walter Benjamin here. Um, the the famous and seminal essay, "The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction." Um, he gets into a similar kind of issue here. Uh, like so, when the Mona, like so, people like I think I read a stat that eighty percent of the people who go to the Louvre just go to see the Mona Lisa or something. Um, right. Uh, something like there's something uh, about being in the presence of the object that. Um, da Vinci um, uh, touched, right? That gives it this authority, that gives it this sort of um, authenticity. Um, and Benjamin is writing, and his essay, frankly, is a little confusing to me, and I'm, I, I'm not going to speak, uh, and I'm not going to pretend to understand it completely. But um, the idea is that with technologies that are able to reproduce images of the Mona Lisa, right? We can all look at the Mona Lisa now, right? Um, uh, we don't have to go to France to see it. Um, but uh, there's what's being stripped away is some sort of kind of spiritual thing. There's some sort of like almost religious practice, uh, a religious awe, this aura, I think he calls it in the essay. Uh, they get stripped away when it's removed 
um, when it's become popularized and publicized widely, when you, when you when you lose that sort of aura, that that kind of authentic, that authoritarian aura, um, the the our engagement with that work of art changes a little bit. And I think that that's a really interesting essay. Uh, and I, I've read it several times. And I don't think I, I, I've ever really kind of got my head around it, but um, it, it's a really interesting essay to think about um, why it is that certain works of art um, seem more authentic or more or, or seem, I don't know. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I'm not like, really I, saying anything. Can, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, I think there is something to that. And if I can, uh, if I can dumb it down a little bit, uh, Stephen King's book, uh, his his biography, autobiography, uh, and and guide to writing is just called On Writing, right? Uh, which uh, uh, is uh, sort of hands down the most popular book I've ever assigned in any of my classes. Everyone loves that um, book. Yeah, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Uh, but he. Uh, he argues that uh, basically he says writing is magic. Like it, you're, you are, uh, you are doing something that as a, a writer, you don't really know what you're doing and I, you're doing. And I think that sort of points back to what you're saying about that external uh, standard. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, and maybe in the, in the areas that I, I don't know that I'm a scholar of, but that I'm a, a, uh, a participant in or an enjoyer of. Uh, so movies and books, uh, the, uh, the movies and books that are sort of, going out of their way to try to be authentic are, are usually really terrible. Uh, <laughs> so I, I think of a movie that came out in the nineties called John Q. Uh, it was Denzel Washington and uh, I don't even remember who else was in it. It was all about how America should have single payer healthcare. Like uh, that, that was basically both the plot and the theme of the movie. Okay. Uh, the, this, this guy, his, his kid needed like a heart transplant or something like that. And he couldn't afford it. So he took a hospital hostage until they agreed to, you know, give his kid a new heart. Uh, but the, the, the message in that movie was so heavy handed that at the end of the day, like it, it was, it was functionally unwatchable. Not even just because I disagree with the point. Like there's lots of movies I disagree with the point, but like it was, it was just wearing it all out on the sleeve. They, they, they overdid the authenticity to the point where like, this isn't, this isn't even watchable anymore. Uh, movies that are made more in that Stephen King mindset of we have this story that we have discovered and we want to tell. I think those are always going to be better movies. They're always going to be better books uh, than the ones that are, you know, the author uh, just uh, exposing himself to the world and telling everyone who he is, you know, deep down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I don't know how that applies to like paintings and poetry and all of that. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't know enough about those. Well, I mean, on one level, uh, I mean, I would, I don't know either, but uh, I do think that there are movies that, that try to, you have this idea of verisimilitude, right? This, uh, uh, something that looks and feels real. So if somebody has a bat, like, uh, Chris, uh, well, oh, geez, what's his name? Um, the, the Robin Hood movie with, uh, uh, with Alan Rickman, who, uh, oh, uh, Costner, uh, Kevin, Kevin Costner. Costner. Yeah. His accent is so bad <laughs> in that movie that it, it blows any kind of authenticity that the movie might have been striving for, right? And so I think on some level, um, authenticity works there. Now, I think what you were describing with the John Q movie, and I vaguely remember that title. I never saw the movie, though, um, is um, it, actually going back to Trilling, his, uh, the preface to the, his collection called The Liberal Imagination actually speaks to just that very thing, like art that is didactic and, and uh, he's very much against like Dreiser and this kind of real, like uh, social realism um, because it's somehow 
it, it kind of demeans, it debases the imagination uh, of the person. And so it gives them these kind of very, it's very propagandistic. Uh, and therefore, uh, it, it somehow weakens the liberal imagination, the liberal political imagination in the end. So it's a, it's a great, if you ever want to read the, um, like I think that's the best trilling anybody can read if they're going to read one trilling is his introduction to the liberal imagination. Um, and, and he talks about that there. And, um, and so I think what you're describing also reminds me of trilling, <laughs> maybe a, a different, yeah. a different era of trilling, but I think uh, we're sort of on the same page there. I, I am not one for didactic uh, art. Yes. Well, I just, uh, maybe, maybe another example, uh, the difference between uh, JK Rowling's, you know, seven book Harry Potter series and J.K. Rowling's regular tweets, right? I mean, uh, uh, I I have no doubt that her her Twitter feed and her public appearances and her public speeches are are much more representative of the things that she you know deeply believes. Uh, but man, the books are so much better. Right? Yeah. The, uh, the, the the books are just vastly superior, and it's because she's she's not dropping the hammer down on. Yeah whatever it is that she believes like it, it, it's not it's not her telling the world about her it's her telling the world this external this story that is external to her this this thing that she's found and is telling us all about yeah yeah that's a really good point too and that, that so that we get into sort of authorship studies um sure one of the um kind of seminal or a couple of the seminal essays um Oh gosh, I'm getting them confused. Um, one is by Bart, and one is by uh, or Barth, and one is by um, Foucault. Death of the author, and and there's another one that is a similar title, and I'm getting the titles confused and the content. So I'm not sure which author is responsible <laughs> for this right now. But uh, the idea that when we think about Nietzsche, for example, do we add if we found a copy of Nietzsche's laundry list, do we add it to the canon of, of Nietzsche's writings, right? And so that's a it's a question of um, again, performance. Uh, like, is he writing in in performance of an as an author, or is he writing like something uh, else? Right, and, and it's a question one must was uh, one must take up here. Um, this is a, a, a wormhole I did not expect to go down, um, <laughs> and and I wish I had um, thought the Benjamin thing came to me kind of on the fly, and I wish I had thought of that before. I might have prepared prepared a better uh, summary of that essay, but uh, maybe I'll do an essay on on Benjamin at some point down the road. Um, have maybe, uh, I have a couple guys in mind that might help me with that. So, um, um, but yeah, so let's move on, uh, to your area of expertise here and try and wrap this up here in the next few minutes. Um, politics, uh, I think, um, authenticity is, uh, on the, on campaign trails particularly, but also in the performance of, uh, administrative duties, um, and for politicians is a, a, <laughs> a factor that is like way out of control. I think in American politics, um, that's my opinion. Wh what are your thoughts on the relationship of authenticity and politics? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, uh, the, the problem with the relationship between authenticity and politics is, is the problem of elections, right? Uh, be, because Congress is elected and the, the president is eh, sort of elected. Uh, there was a great Babylon B art article, right? About the, uh, uh, the vast conspiracy of millions of Americans to uh, to to swing the electoral college in favor of Trump. Uh, <laughs> <I saw that. laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, because because of elections, 
in, in one sense, we can never really know what especially a congressman ever believes, right? You, you can you can never know that because they're, they're not going to tell you because they can't tell you. Uh, so it's one of the huge problems when we're, we're trying to measure the influence of interest groups and lobbies. Uh, you, you can never do that because no congressman will ever say, uh, I voted for this bill because, you know, this this lobbying group uh, wrote me a check, wrote a check to my uh, my campaign fund. Right. Right. Uh, and, and uh, I, I think to, uh, to some extent, it's fine that they don't say that because I, I suspect that most congressmen would vote the way they vote regardless of you know what, whatever checks are coming in. I, I think there is some honesty there, uh, but you're, you're, you're just not going to hear uh, the, the congressman sort of uh, – uh, you're, you're not going to hear who he really is. And I think that's okay. Uh, I don't – on one level, I don't care who he really is. I, I care about things like – is he going to be a competent legislator? Uh, how is he going to vote? Is he going to listen to people who who know know more about issues than he does? Is he going to you know self educate in areas where he needs to self educate? Uh, the the guy who uh, who throws a spanner in the works on this, and in some ways is Donald Trump, uh, although in other ways Trump is the uh, the conclusion of a long process uh, that, that's just been in the works really since the the 60s or the 70s. Um, Trump is a Trump is a challenge when it comes to authenticity because. Uh, we we don't know who he really is other than that he is for himself. Uh, so he is he is authentically pro-Trump. Uh, that seems to extend to his family, uh, his current wife at least, and some of his children, uh, maybe all of his children. I guess I, I don't know enough about the relationships there. Uh, but I mean, the man will the man will say different things in every setting. So when you ask, you know, what does Donald Trump actually believe? There, there, there's there's literally no way to answer that question other than that he believes in Donald Trump. Like he, he I think he legitimately believes that he will be the best president we could possibly have right now, um, contrary to perhaps all evidence. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I don't think that he is the one who's – so you, you sent me an article called uh, Donald Trump is the first postmodern president or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's on the list. I, I think that's – Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's wrong. Uh, I think – if, if nothing else, our first postmodern president is the president who who couldn't define is. Uh, that's, that's, but but Trump is certainly uh, the uh, the one who embodies it best so far. Uh, he's he's not the first, but he's maybe the best at it. And I, I can't imagine he'll be the last. I, I think that Trump is fascinating to talk about with regards to the subject because he I mean, challenges and upholds every idea we have about authenticity. He both like, um, uh, so for example, um, I feel like all the, the backlash against him is if he's so abnormal, like this idea of normalcy. Um, now obviously the government is not running as the government normally does. Right. But, um, yeah, it, <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on the, the white house, right. Is not running the way it normally I, does. I, I mean, so we're, the taxes are still being collected. The, the on that military level, is still out there. But in any other administration, if a party has all the branches of government, um, all the all the chambers of government, they would have passed at least a law that was significant, right? right? right. <laughs> I mean, so things are not running like they normally run on that level, right? And yet, uh, so much of like like his personal behavior, his his kind of abhorrent. I mean, he's his abhorrent self. I mean, he's just a, a despicable human, right? Um, sure. People talk about that as if it's abnormal. And I think on some level, it's the most honest expression of who we are as a people. I think Trump is, is exactly who we are as a, as a, as a society uh, in, in some ways. Um, oh, no, certainly. And so in some ways, he is 
thoroughly authentic. Um, uh, and I think some of the, the backlash against him is because he's so authentic and we don't want to admit that's what we are kind of right. Um, we want to, we have this idea, these ideas about ourselves that are just not factual. Right. Um, and so uh, in other ways, I'm obviously he can't tell the truth about anything um, to save his life. I mean, he can't, uh, he, he's never said a true statement in his life. Right. I mean, so many things that he well, says, but as, I think he would say he's never lied. Right. He, he would say he always tells the truth. So he's being authentic. So this is what I'm saying. So he's like um, living out our contemporary idea of authenticity, like to himself. Right. right. He is, he is an authentic person. He's saying exactly, he's presenting exactly who he is. Right. Um, but to others um, it's, 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 it's insincere. Then let's, let's go back to trolling there. And so, yeah, I feel like his um, presidency is I, I if someone would I would love to read a book about authenticity in, in the Trump presidency, I mean in the Trump era. Uh I I think that it would just be a fascinating way to really explore that term. Not necessarily as a takedown of Donald Trump, but just to use his um um this this era as a test case for how we actually engage with the term of authenticity. I, I think there's so many weird ways in which he both obliterates our idea of authenticity with the fake news stuff, right? I mean, CNN is not fake news. There's a dis difference between bad reporting and made-up stories, right? Fake news is a term that was specific to these kind of made-up stories, right? Um, right? And you can't just apply that term to everybody you don't like now. Like, that's 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 not in that's that's disingenuous right and therefore inauthentic sure. and so so in that way he's totally inauthentic um but in so many other ways he's utterly authentic and the way he threw uh falsehood uh, a false presentation of himself he is able to build an authentic relationship with some of his voters right uh and who feel like they actually can relate to him in some way that is like totally baffling to, to me and, and I think most people. And so, um, yeah, I think that his, he is just a fascinating example of, or of the complexity of this term. And I, 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 I think I agree with all of that. Although I would, I would maybe modify it and say, I, I I'm willing to give the Trump a little more of the benefit of the doubt. I, I think he genuinely believes whatever he's saying when he's saying it, he just, he doesn't hold on to anything. Like it's it's all about his setting and his audience. And uh, what's the uh, what's the great line from Seinfeld? Uh, it's it's not a lie if you believe it. I think he just changes what he believes, you know, from minute to minute and from tweet to tweet. And yeah, that, that's he's he's flexible enough that he can do that. And you're right, that's a reflection of of American uh, Amer the American people. Uh, I'm I'm a little bit ashamed as a political scientist that I, I didn't see Trump was going to win. I, I should have spent more time reading YouTube comments, and then I would have I would have known. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and so I mean, this isn't a show about Trump, but he is a a, a very ex uh, interesting example of how this phenomenon and this ideology of authenticity has reached this kind of disturbing apotheosis in our political system right now. Uh, I, I don't really know what to make of it. I had actually found in, in doing some research for this, an essay from the 2008 primary um, by Adam Kirsch, who actually wrote a really great book called Why Trilling Matters. He's a, a modern, uh, he's a younger person who's actually kind of 
trying to re-inject trilling into our political and, and critical critical discourse. Um, and he wrote for uh, the New York Sun uh, an essay on the campaign trail uh, where he actually uh, compares the memoirs of Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And, and he talks about how Obama's right as a writer, Obama far surpasses Clinton um, as a writer. And, and so this is, again, before the, the nomination is even wrapped up, I believe. Um, and so at one point, he actually uses Trilling's terms to distinguish between them. He puts uh, Clinton, Hillary Clinton, into the uh, sincerity bucket, right? Uh, she's reaching out to people at their level all the time to the point where there is no authentic self that she's actually presenting. And I think we actually saw that come to fruition during her campaign. She was just unable to present like a, a, a cohesive uh, persona to sell to people, right? Um, um, and so he actually says, he gives a great um, little summary of, of Trilling here. Uh, Lionel Trilling in his classic study, study, Sincerity and Authenticity, saw these as the central concepts of modern literature and argued that, similar as the words appear, they represent two essentially different values. Sincerity implies a public end. It can only be manifested in relation to other people because it involves meaning in your heart what you say aloud. Authenticity, on the other hand, is a private virtue, or still more emphatically, an anti-public one, since it regards all intercourse with other people as potentially deceptive. If sincerity is saying what you mean, authenticity is being what you are, a paradoxical task in which instinct and even violence are more efficacious than goodwill and good words. That is why Trilling considered authenticity a word of ominous import. And so he um, says that um, she, uh, Hillary Clinton always sincerely means well, and it follows that if her opponents disagree with her, they must be insincere and mean ill, right? And then at the end of this essay, it's a really interesting distinction. If the vice of sincerity is self-pity, and I think we've seen we've seen that um, uh, in this second campaign as well. The vice of authenticity is narcissism, uh, and so this uh, essay is really interesting in that it, it commends Obama as a far greater present presenter of self, but. Um, running on a cult of personality, having nothing necessarily to offer other people, not necessarily meaning what one says. Uh, and so it's a really interesting article. I put a link to it uh, on, on the show notes so you can, it can go back and read something from however many years ago now. And, uh, and, and it's a really interesting uh, way to think about how authenticity and sincerity engage with our political sphere. Go ahead, Coyle. No, no, I, I think that's all. It was, it was an interesting essay. I, uh, the, the one thing that I thought that might kind of throw a spanner in some of his works is uh, I'm assuming that of the what the four books he he, he analyzed, uh, at least two of them were ghost written. OK, uh, which which that has to have some kind of impact impact on sincerity versus authenticity. Yes. Are you talking about do you think Obama's books were ghost written? I don't think dreams of my father were because they were written before he, it was written before he was anybody. Right. Um, audacity of hope. I don't know. Um, and in fact, I would assume that at least in part, just because of when it was written and how busy he had to have been. Yeah. Uh, and in this and essay, I, I would go ahead. Oh, I would say the Clinton's uh, second book. I, I'm blanking on the title right now. Um, 
this probably also goes through. I don't know about it takes a village. Yeah, uh, that one I could I could go either way on. Yeah, I read um, Dreams of Our Father. I read that in grad school in a, a class I was in. Um, but uh, I had not read Audacity of Hope. But he actually talks about how that book um, hedges a bit more. Uh, it, it seems less uh, sincere, less authentic, I guess, suppose. Uh, so I think he might, uh, might may agree with you on that to some degree. Um, but yeah, that definitely. Uh, so then if we look at our little uh, relationship monitor uh if you're presenting something that you didn't necessarily write but you sign off on um as a way to reach the public right so where does that fall in the authenticity meter um yeah i mean again i from a political science point of view that's fine no politician writes their own campaign ads no uh, it's rare that politicians write their own speeches uh so i i don't necessarily have a problem with that uh uh, but I'm also usually not trying to judge sincerity versus authenticity in that sense. It's more is what they're saying true rather yeah. than do they deeply believe it. Uh, external standard again, right? Yeah. Uh, so are you <laughs> rather than judging their soul? Let's uh, let's just stick with uh, with whether or not they're right. That's interesting. I'm just like at first that strikes me as a kind of like cynical um, approach to life. Like I don't really care if you mean something, but I would your uh, exposition of Jonathan Edwards, it's less cynical. I think I feel like, I feel right, like that. Right. Actually so, is so, consistent. And yeah, totally, totally different setting. Right. So talking about uh, uh, if, you know, if a, if a politician wants to know themselves, whether or not they deeply mean it, that's when sort of the, the Edwards religious affection type stuff might, might be useful uh, as a, as a voter, as a political scientist, when a politician says something, uh, I want to know if they mean it in the sense that I want to know if they're going to follow through if they get into office. Uh, if deep down they don't care, but they're still going to vote that way. Yeah, you, maybe that maybe that's cynical, but kind of the cold hard political reality is who cares, right? It's a. Uh, I, I would prefer my politicians to be honest. But I realize that 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 may not be completely possible. So I will settle for politicians doing what they say and being realistic about what they say. Sure. And so even at the level of citizen, like it's extraordinarily difficult to be honest at all times. Right. I mean, and so in the the work that they do with all the pressures that they're facing, um, sure, all the complications, it it does seem like it's it's not a. uh, a reasonable request <laughs> that they actually mean what they say. Um, but I also, I have to wonder, is there not a, a moral, does that not seep back into society somehow? Uh, that does that insincerity not seep back into society and create some kind of Frankenstein's monster? I don't know. Well, and, and the problem that I, I think we've had the, the problem and this is probably obvious from everything we've said in this episode so far. Uh, the problem in our society today is is not a problem of too little authenticity. Uh, the problem, certainly politically, and this is especially true uh, in Congress with the president right now and, and at the state and local level, is that we have started voting for people uh, based on the fact that they seem genuine, particularly when they agree with us, uh, without regard to the question of whether or not they can actually do the job they're elected to do. Yeah. So... It, it's great that the the guy you vote for uh, is you know conservative up and down the line and agrees with you on absolutely every issue. Uh, if he has never had any kind of elective office before, if he has never had to to write or read a law, he's going to be completely ineffective at his job. So 
yeah, vote for the guy who's authentic. And what you end up with is the Congress we have now. Uh, we have a, a Congress that's made up of, I, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head, but it's something like a, a quarter to a third of people uh, who've, who prior to being in, in Congress had never written their own law. And is it any wonder they, that we can't get any laws passed because they, they don't know how to do it. They, they don't know how the process works. They don't know what a well-written law looks like. Uh, I mean, there there is something to be said there for just having the skill set and then worrying about authenticity. Yeah. And then, I mean, all that stuff goes to it proxy is written by think tanks and uh, yep. special interest groups that the Congress then the Congress, each Congress person um, just sort of signs off on. And, and, and they don't know how to read to, to find out what they're, what they're signing off on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's okay. And so this is the whole, like, um, would I want to go out and have a beer with him? This, this is, this came up. I mean, this is one, I mean, advantage that Bush had over Gore, uh, in, in that yep. election, right? Uh, is he was much more sort of relatable. Uh, and, and he had administrative experience. I mean, he was qualified in, in to a reasonable degree. By, by any reasonable yeah, standard, yeah. Um, to be, to but be. But that's not close. how he campaigned, right? Right. He, he, he ran a very inauthentic campaign, right? right. It's, I'm, I'm an outsider. Uh, I'm a, I'm I'm just a, another fella. Uh, never mind that I'm a you know millionaire, son of a former president, governor of Texas for eight years. Yeah. So on and so on and so on. Yeah, exactly. And Ivy so, League graduate. <laughs> exactly. Right. Skull and Bones. I should do a show on Skull and Bones. Um, I you love. Should. I totally love that crap. Um, I should totally do that. Um, every time I <laughs> every time I'm on a show with you, I come up with four more ideas for other shows. Um, but yeah, th- so that was. To me, the first time I get maybe Clinton, I suppose Clinton also had that advantage over Bush's father uh, uh, is that he was sort of relatable in that way. Um, And uh, and obviously Obama had that over everybody who's I mean, I mean, he's like stupendously talented uh, in that way and, and presenting himself as this likable good person. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that which, was which he is. Yeah. I mean, uh, there I'd say he, he wins the authenticity contest. Right? Yeah. He, uh, I mean, I think I think Bush was likable, good person, too. Uh, the difference was there. There's actual experience in the background compared to no actual experience at all. Sure. <laughs> I get you. I, I understand that for sure. And I think that's part of what Kirsch's critique of Obama was in that essay that he, I mean, in, right. in that essay, he actually says Obama's a much better memoirist, but he's very kind of. Uh, suspicious of him as a, as a political candidate uh, towards the end of it. It's very interesting, actually. Um, um, so one last thing I want to say, I guess, because when you're talking about this, you don't care that someone's inauthentic, but other people. Well, don't don't care is maybe too broad. Yeah. Right? Uh, uh, but it, it, it's not the determining factor. But I mean, I feel like real opinions get made get uh, get arrived at by observing public figures, right? So if a public sure. figure is saying something they don't mean or doing something like a discerning person who knows sort of the ins and outs of things might say, oh yeah, I get it. I don't, I'm not going to take this too seriously, but the general public is not, right? And I think this right. is where our our media actually comes into play. And I have, uh, I don't know if I should name names here or not. Probably not, I suppose. Um, but there's a, a I, years in another life ago, I went to this little broadcast school, right? And, uh, and that's how I got into television for a while. And uh, it's a long story. But the uh, uh, I, we had an instructor who was like a, a producer of like one of the big morning talk shows in town. And um, 
And he was telling us, uh, he also sort of on the side went on a weekend down to Columbus to do a little uh, two-person call-in talk show. Uh, And he was telling us a story how no one was calling in and they were just sort of talking. So during a commercial break, they um, devised a plan. So they made up a story that somebody had called off air and reamed them about something. And so when they came back on air, they were speaking about this other person who doesn't exist. Right. Uh, And that got people calling. (laughs) Right. And and he's all proud of himself. Right. And everybody, and it's from a, you know, technical professional level, that's awesome, right? I mean, that's really good work, um, but it's it's dishonest, right? And it's not authentic. Yes. And, and so the same guy, um, years later, um, he ends up working for Glenn Beck at his whatever gulag that he runs. And so, um, um, uh, but he was, I think there was a little controversy when Obamacare first started getting rolled out. Um, somebody who was filling in for Glenn Beck, and this is the same guy um, that I knew back then, he um, was going off on how there was some sort of provision that taxed suntan booths um, because of some, there's some, something about uh, tanning booths because they cause, they you know contribute to cancer or something. There was some sort of tax on it. And he went on the air on Glenn Beck's show uh, and said that this is racist against white people. <laughs> this tax is because black people don't go to tanning beds basically was his implication. And, uh, and, and, wow. it, and it was like the, the controversy of the day for about 15 minutes. Right. And I knew the guy, I knew he doesn't actually believe that. Right. Um, and yet the listeners of his show now like go through their lives with an opinion that has been derived from, from a lie, from a performance that's totally devoid of, of authenticity. And and that I know that that's just a scratch of the surface of how talk radio works and how Fox News sure. works, frankly, um, and how all the cable news, like those guys don't even believe what they say. Uh, they're just doing it for ratings, right? And it has real world implications. So, I mean, this is where I'd push back a little bit about why it doesn't, how it doesn't matter. I don't know. Right. No, no, no. And, and, and you're, you're right about that. So, uh, to, to even up it a little bit, we might look at someone like Newt Gingrich, right? Uh, the uh, uh, the guy who runs as a conservative Republican family values guy. You know how many affairs did he have? How many divorces and so on? So yeah, uh, maybe maybe don't care and doesn't matter. Uh, speaking with my political scientist hat on, looking at sort of right. candidates on the objective side, does it matter that they don't actually believe it? What matters is that vote they cast in Congress. Um, yeah, certainly as a Christian, I wouldn't say that doesn't matter, right? If uh, the, the, the hypocrisy is a sin, uh, even hypocrisy when you're being a hypocrite about something that I disagree with or or something I think is wrong, it, it is still a sin. Um, yeah, I would just I would just want to to be careful not to make authenticity the uh, the, the defining mark, and maybe I'm, I'm rolling back a little bit from right. what what I had said. Well, and there I'd uh, agree with you um, because I feel like what was successful about my the person I know, I'm not going to, I know the name, but I'm not going to mention it. Um, sure. I suppose anybody who has Google can find this out, but um, um, the, the person that, that was uh, an, an achievement of authenticity though. Right. I mean, he performed the anger. He performed the rhetoric of that moment in an authentic way that caused other people to change their mind about something. Um, and, and, and so that is one of the things about authenticity is that it's paradoxically, potentially at least in inauthentic it's 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 untruthful uh and and i think it has real world uh, implications that um that i I feel like our social fabric has been sacrificed for profit in in um in 
for profit broadcasting. Uh, and I, and I feel like that that is, uh, uh, if there's anything, I mean, people talk about what's caused America's moral rot. I mean, I think that the way we consume news is way up there. I think that, that, um, the inauthenticity, the, uh, the, the disgraceful sort of insincerity of, of the way that, um, we consume news in this country through talk radio and, uh, and cable television is, uh, I think of a major factor in the kind of inauthenticity and discourse that we have right now and the, the unprincipled discourse that we have. So, um, right. And I would, I would fling the blame uh, agreeing with you about the consumption of media irresponsibly, but I would, I would say the blame falls much more on the American people because the, the media uh, reflects our desires, but really they're just, they're just giving us what we want to hear, right? Uh, they, they wouldn't put something out there if they didn't think we wanted to hear it because they're like you point out, they're for profit. Uh, I think uh, Franklin, um, I'm blanking on his first name, but he has a book called Politics and Film uh, where he talks about the feedback loop. Like we we want to hear this thing. The media gives it to us, so then we want to hear more of it, so they give us more of it. Uh, he's talking about that specifically with film, but I think it applies to basically all media. Uh, there, there's this cycle that we get caught in, and uh, I, I think it's hard to blame the media because the media isn't – really a person right yeah there, there are media there are lots of them uh but there is an american people yeah and and that's it's just easier to place blame there maybe maybe it's back to me being lazy as a politician again well no but i, I the one thing i would say you're leaving out i i do think i'll have to look at the, i'm going to put i've been jotting down the references that you've been giving me i'm going to try and put these in the show notes for anybody who's listening and is interested in following up um i do think that you underplaying the role of prop uh, propaganda i mean that's maybe not the but public relations in the last episode that we recorded i i kind of briefly mentioned edward bernays who's uh freud's nephew uh who um basically took a lot of freudian ideas combined them with political experience of propaganda uh in the german uh realm and invented the advertising industry in america uh and uh, and used a lot of those ideas to manufacture desires in people right mm-hmm. and so that feedback loop is is a little it's 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 I'm not sure that we have I, that I can picture the the right Venn diagram here uh, for for these uh, <laughs> for how that works. But yeah, they are selling us something that we want, but they're also implanting the desire for the thing that they're selling us, uh, right? And right. and it is an individual responsibility, uh, and that's kind of why I do this show is to get us to think about stuff like that. Why we think the way, the way we think, uh, it is an individual's responsibility to discern um, one's own desires and, and and hold them up against something. And this is where Jonathan Edwards's um, idea of authenticity is actually i think really powerful and a nice antidote to uh to where we're at right now um and if you're interested uh, there's a four-part four-hour documentary by um adam um uh last time i forgot his first name this time i forgot his last curtis uh adam curtis uh that you can find on youtube it's called um century of the self uh and it it details bernays uh and his um uh, uh, his work and the way it plays out through the century. It's, it's fascinating. Um, and so I'll, I'll put a link to that up there as well. Um, Coyle, anything else to add? Uh, no, no, this is another long episode. Sorry about that. You're, no, you're fun to talk to. Dan. I, well, no, no, you are. This is actually shorter than we've gone for a while here. So this is not bad. An hour and a half is I can, I can handle that. Um, so no, uh, I really appreciated it. Uh, like Coyle brings this, like, uh, this, 
web of knowledge that I have no um, experience with, um, and also a political perspective that I don't necessarily always agree with, but I, but I respect the way he comes at his ideas, uh, and, and I think that you uh, um, brought a lot to this conversation. It was a lot of fun. Um, I would really love to hear uh, from listeners as well, so I always tell you to go to the Facebook page. If you like the Facebook page, um, you'll get you know, the links to this show and people will comment under those links, uh, their ideas about the show. And we have some really interesting little debates that go on, uh, there. And I really, really appreciate reading those. And so please do that. Um, as always, everyone will tell you, go to iTunes. I should check that to see if anybody's been doing it. Um, it has been quiet for so long. I haven't gotten and I haven't kept the habit up of checking, uh, but please do go to iTunes and, and like, and uh, review the show. Uh, and don't forget our listener contest, uh, uh, if you want to write a fake ad, talk about advertising here. If you want to write a fake ad, uh, we'll read it on the air and we'll have a, a vote of listeners to who wins. And the top two vote getters get a sectarian review coaster handmade by Josh Mozik, who was a guest on this show once. And uh, and so uh, I'd love to read these fake ads. They've been a lot of fun to read, the ones that have come in so far. Um, uh, this is Danny Anderson thanking Coyle Neal uh, for joining me again. Uh, and you've been listening to the Sectarian Review Podcast.